0: Well, good morning. My name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Before I forget, I want to dismiss Children's Church. There's no, um, well, no Children's Church this morning, but the pre-K classes, meaning if you go through these back doors, children ages three and four um, can, can hang out with some volunteers back there during the service. Um, if we haven't met, as I said, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Usually, and by usually I mean every other Sunday I have ever been up here. I'm usually over here doing music. Um, We have um, a policy here at Trinity, if you join the Elder Board, which I did earlier this year, you enter a rotation and all the elders, in addition to Pastor Brian, preach about twice a year. And uh, I was joking with Pastor Brian earlier this week, he instituted this policy really to just see how secure he is in his job here at Trinity, just how much job security he really has. Um, And I think this is a great idea, in fact, I think we should expand it so that at least once a year, all the elders also have to lead music, (laughs) and then we can all be uncomfortable together. It'll be great, it'll be great. Uh, Before I jump into the text this morning, uh, join with me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love thee and worthily magnify your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Open our eyes and our ears to hear your word and be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 76, our psalm for this morning. We're preaching through... The Psalms, pretty much every summer here at Trinity, we're in the 70s this year, and the text for this morning, Psalm 76. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, His name is great. His tent is in Salem, His dwelling place in Zion. In these opening lines, we read that God has a reputation in Israel. He is known in Judah. Salem comes from the same root word as shalom, in Hebrew meaning peace. In verse 2, the author of this psalm is referencing Jerusalem, the city of peace, as the place where God dwells. The emphasis here is on the presence of God in and among His people in the capital city of Jerusalem. And this is significant because it would have reminded the singers of this psalm, this hymn, of God's covenant with His people to bring them to the promised land a place where they would flourish as a nation, where they would be set apart to follow His laws, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and to experience His blessing and His peace. In my quiet time, I've been reading through the book of Exodus, which is all about how God brought His people out of captivity in Egypt and the story of how they eventually get to the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. The existence of the city of Jerusalem, and especially the temple, were tangible evidences of God's faithfulness to keep the covenant He had made hundreds of years before to those patriarchs. The temple, especially, is the center of worship. It was the place where God's people gathered to worship Him, to offer sacrifices that covered the sins of the people. It was in the temple that God's Word was proclaimed. It was in the temple that the blessing of God's presence dwelt. Every time the Israelites passed through the gates into the temple courts, they would have been reminded of the covenant that God had made with their forefathers and of His faithfulness to keep that covenant. The temple was God's faithfulness set in stone. I was recently listening to a podcast uh, from a pastor from D.C. named Mark Dever. And part of the discussion on the podcast was talking about church buildings. And he referred to church buildings in this podcast as time capsules. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. This sanctuary that we're all seated in, or I'm standing in, this morning was built sometime around 1914. And at that time, congregations in the Twin Cities worked really hard to build not only functional, but also beautiful spaces. We don't know a lot about the folks that were responsible for the construction of this building, but we do know that they gave sacrificially of their time, energy, and resources to ensure that this house of worship wouldn't just be functional, but it would also be beautiful. One of my responsibilities here at Trinity is to care for our building. And when I first came on staff, we had several large projects in a row. We First hired a company to put a new roof on. If you've never looked at our roof, do that today. It's huge. And then shortly after that, we also had a bunch of windows installed. And I'd probably been here about 18 months or two years in my staff role. And I remember feeling a little overwhelmed at the scale and scope of these projects. And I walked through this door right here, came into the sanctuary, and it was a beautiful sunny day. And the sun was pouring through the stained glass up here over the pulpit, and it just or over the balcony, rather, and it just, uh, it just took my breath away. It was so beautiful. And I was overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude because here I was stressed at maintaining my little projects, but God has been faithful to maintain this building for over 100 years. This church building has never been without a gospel presence. This building is a testimony to God's faithfulness to His people here in the Twin Cities for over 100 years. We steward this building today not just for us but we do it hopefully for brothers and uh, brothers and sisters in Christ yet unborn hopefully one day they will gather here to worship and proclaim his gospel to a city that is in desperate need of his mercy and grace in a similar way every time God's people gathered in the temple in Jerusalem they were experiencing God's steadfast love and that he had provided a place for his people to worship him in spirit and in truth in safety and in peace. All right, so the next passage, the next section of this psalm, verses 3 through 10, talks about God's judgment. I'm going to read several verses here, so read along with me if you will. This is verses 3 through 10. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game. The valiant lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted in the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. In these verses, we read that God's people were under assault from enemies and that God himself had taken up the defense. Though the Israelites go to war, it is God who breaks the arrows intended to pierce his children. It is God who destroys the shield and swords of the wicked. And verse 4, God is depicted as radiant and full of light. To describe God as more majestic than mountains full of game uh, or mountains rich with game might seem very odd to us. Like, what's so cool about that? And you're like a mountain full of, what's so majestic about that? But this is a picture that people in the ancient world, I think, would have understood intuitively. For the most part, people in this time would have lived much closer to the land. We now know through the study of ecology that for an ecosystem, in this case, like a, a mountain, To sustain large populations of wild game, everything has to be very healthy. The water and the nutrient cycles, you have to have proper populations of insects, birds, trees, grasses, even the soil underneath all of those creatures must be healthy in order to sustain such rich life. So what this verse is telling us, it's painting a picture of God's extravagant blessing. That God is so great, His blessings extend not only to His people, but to the very land and animals, that they should flourish and thrive as well. Verses 5 and 6 make explicit the fact that it is God that has rebuked these enemies, and they lie still because of his judgment. The valiant lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. It's interesting that the psalmist makes explicit horse and chariot We know from other passages in the Old Testament that the Israelites were terrified of chariots. There's actually laws in the Old Testament about destroying chariots if they are captured in war. Chariots were the tanks. They were the heavy armor of the ancient battlefield. They were extremely expensive to maintain, and it took years for professionals to learn how to handle the powerful horses required to maneuver these chariots on the battlefield. If you're being invaded by an army with chariots, It means you're being attacked by professionals, bent on your destruction, experienced in war. Israelite armies were largely made up of conscripted farmers, pressed into service in cases of national emergency to defend their land. An army with chariots should have been terrifying to the Israelites, and yet God has stilled the horse and rider. The chariots no longer streak across the land, the plunder of these invading armies belongs to God's people because He has defeated them so soundly. Verses 7 through 9 read, "'It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet when you, God, rose up to judge to save all the afflicted of the land.'" God is to be feared because His anger has been aroused. And why is God so angry? Why has he pronounced judgment from heaven to such an extent that the land itself is afraid and lies still? Verse 9 tells us that God rose up to judge his enemies because they afflicted his covenant people and the land. Who can stand before you when you are angry, asked the psalmist, and the answer is clear, no one. God's judgment is poured out not because he's a petty tyrant, not because he didn't get his way, not because he's peeved or annoyed, but because he loves his people, and he will not stand idly by and see them afflicted and destroyed. Verse 10 goes so far to claim that God's wrath actually brings him praise. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. One of the outcomes of God's judgment is that it results in less evil. Those who survive God's judgment are restrained by the display of his power. Verse 11 says, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. One commentator I read this week said something to the effect of, we are not obligated to make vows to the Lord, but we are, we are obligated to keep the vows we make to the Lord. And how could it be otherwise? If God is all-powerful and He judges those who harm His people, why would He restrain His wrath against those who break their word to Him? God takes sin seriously, and He will not overlook a lie. Verse 12 says, He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Though there are many earthly rulers with incredible power to shape our world, God rules not just nations and states, but over heaven and earth. All the power of every king and ruler on earth combined pales in comparison to the power of God. There's a proverb in the Scriptures that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The leaders of this world would do well to fear the Lord, for that would be the beginning of wisdom for them and the beginning of justice for all who live under their authority. Now, as we come to the end of this psalm, uh, I want to recognize maybe the theological elephant in the room, which is that people like us, modern kind of American Westerners, we tend to struggle with texts like this. Texts that are so explicit and so forcefully describe God's judgment and wrath. For many of us, the struggle is between how can God be good and loving and also be a God of judgment. Brothers and sisters, it is a false dichotomy to pit God's love and His mercy against His judgment and wrath. We see here in the text how both of these traits are displayed right alongside one another. Now, it is far beyond the scope of this sermon to try to fully resolve this tension, but I have a few thoughts I want to share with you I think might help us begin to wrestle with how to resolve what seems to us like a conflict. Um, From my first point, I just want to say the relationship between love and anger, wrath and mercy is much more complex even for us. Even for us, it's not so simple. You can't pit these two uh, attributes against one another. I was trying to think about how to explain this, and the the thing that immediately popped in my mind is like parents with children. So, if you're here at Trinity and you're not a parent, you don't have to look too far to find one. (laughs) Um, And if you had any relationship with a parent, you know that From the moment you find out that you're going to have a baby, your whole life begins to reorient around this child. You start saving money to pay for expenses. You prepare a physical space, like a bedroom or a crib. You take mama to the doctor many, many times in order to monitor her and the baby's health. You throw a party to celebrate this new life before the baby is even born. Let me say that again. You throw a party to celebrate a baby that's not even alive in the flesh yet. You don't, you don't even have this baby yet, and you're throwing a party. You're also hoping at this party to score that sweet stroller you've been looking at, but that's, that's not the main point. The main point is you give and give, you pour yourself out to care for this child, and if anything would threaten the health or safety or well-being of this child, it would get you upset real quick. Here's a a way to kind of describe this. In a strange way, this kind of love is what's behind every parent's action in a phenomenon I like to call the parental sidewalk meltdown. So if you know immediately what I'm talking about, uh, we all live in a city where there's lots of traffic and busy streets. I grew up in a country in a very rural area, so I was a little bit older when I learned how to walk on sidewalks and not wander out into traffic. And I don't remember the exact details, but etched into my memory is the look on my mom's face. I don't know how old I was when I started to wander in the street. She was just like, red face, like, Josiah, stop. And I remember thinking as a little kid, like, what's up with mom? Like, why is she so angry? I'm just like, I'm just walking. And as a father now of three children under five, yeah, I get it. (laughs) I totally get it. I've totally lost it on my kids when they're starting to run out into the street without looking either anyway, (laughs) for traffic. And I'm angry and I'm loud and I'm yelling at them on the sidewalk, but you don't do that as a parent because you hate your child. You do that because you love your child. You're afraid for their safety, and why? Because you love them. This outburst, what appears to be an outburst of anger and wrath is actually love. Anything that would harm what you love arouses your anger even if that thing that could harm your child is your child. My whole point here is just to say that the relationship between wrath and love is much more complex than we tend to think. To pit these two emotions against each other is to do injustice to the power of love and anger and to incorrectly understand these two attributes of God's character. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking you could put it this way. God could have been wrathful And not loving, right? He could be wrathful and not good, but God cannot be good and not be wrathful. God could have been wrathful and not be good, but He cannot be good and not be wrathful. There's a Christian theologian from Eastern Europe named Miroslav Volf, and he was studying theology in the U.S. in the 1990s during the ethnic cleansing associated with the Bosnian War. And he was struggling with these two doctrines, the doctrines and attributes of God's character, His love and His wrath. And I want to quote him here at length. Bear with me. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry Later he continues, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You see, God's wrath against evil is a natural outworking of His love for creation At Genesis 3, we read that the world in which we live is fallen. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God's commands and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And as their descendants, we perpetuate that rebellion against God's law. Sin corrupts the very fabric of the world that God made good. And that corruption, that tearing of the fabric of creation doesn't just exist out there in the world. That same brokenness extends in here to our character, our thoughts, our hearts, and our souls. In another psalm we read, this is Psalm 14, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Listen to this last quote from from Miroslav Volf. Once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment, there is no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine the wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. Brothers and sisters, we are all objects of God's wrath because we have participated in the undoing of the good world God has made. We have committed acts of injustice against people made in God's image. We have lied, stolen, coveted things that do not belong to us. We have sinned, and our sin makes us guilty before God. The punishment allotted for those who disobey God in Psalm 76 is death. And that same fate awaits us. Romans 6:23 says, "For the wages of sin is death." Death is the fate of those who break God's law. But that's not the end of Romans 6:23. The verse continues, "For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to see God's love most clearly displayed, you must look to where His wrath is most clearly displayed. If you want to see God's love most clearly displayed, you have to look to to where His wrath is most clearly displayed. On the cross, Jesus bears the wrath of God poured out against rebels and evildoers like us. Don't be confused. You weren't just ignorant in your sin, passively resisting God's call to repentance and salvation. You were actively fighting against God in your heart. God isn't just wrathful against injustice and evil, however. He is also a God who is rich in mercy. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see Christ's betrayal, his arrest, his beating, his unjust condemnation, his torture, his crucifixion, his death. All of that was born for the love of sinners like you and me. If you want to know what God thinks of sin, look at his judgment and wrath poured out on Christ at Calvary. And if you want to know what love looks like, look closely again, and you will see the God man, Jesus Christ, on the cross giving his life as a ransom for many. His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension are the proof that God judges sin and extends his forgiveness and love to all who would repent and put their faith in his atoning sacrifice. A hymn writer once put it this way, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. I want to extend two invitations this morning from the text. If you were here today and you are not following Jesus, we're glad you're here. This is a place where you're welcome to observe the worship of God's people and ask questions about anything you see here. The text this morning, however, reminds us that God has and will continue to protect His people, that all the powers of this world that would seek their destruction will fail. It also tells us that He will judge sinners. He will judge the wicked in the world, and He will not restrain His wrath. The invitation to you this morning, if you do not know Jesus, is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Jesus invites you to give your life to him and find instead of judgment, forgiveness, and instead of wrath, mercy, and grace. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, I invite you to remember the sweetness of the good news of Jesus Christ, that though you were a rebel against God's will, in Christ and through Christ, he has made a way for you to be forgiven. An object of his mercy and forgiveness and an object of his wrath no more. I invite you to confess your sins again to God and experience His grace anew this morning. And may we all be emboldened to carry His gospel into every corner of our lives and of our city to the praise of His glorious name. Now, as we move to a time of communion, the music team is going to be coming on up, uh, and as they lead us through song, you can come up to the table, take the bread and cup from the folks that will be up here serving communion, and then go back to your seat Uh, down the side aisles. We practice open communion here at Trinity City Church, which means you do not have to be a regular tender or a member here uh, of this church to partake in this meal. We ask only that you are a Christian. Uh, If you're not a Christian here this morning, you should not partake of this meal. We encourage you, again, to observe, ask questions, and we pray that one day God would give you the gift of faith and that you too might participate in this meal with us with joy. If you are a Christian, then take the next moment to examine your heart and prepare yourself for this table. Hear now the words of institution from First Corinthians eleven. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given things he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Join me now in a prayer of confession and we can read this off the screen. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you made all things and you call everyone to account. With shame, we confess the sins we have committed against you in thought, word, and deed. We rightly deserve your condemnation. We turn from our sins and are truly sorry for them. They are a burden we cannot bear. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us all that is past. Enable us to serve and please you in newness of life, To your honor and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, you have promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Now, as we come to your table, we bow our heads because Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We bow in reverence, in respect, in awe, and in adoration for the person of Christ, the words of Christ, and today for the cross of Christ. Now, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit so that our worship in this moment will bring true honor to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and genuine consolation to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.